Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. We have uh, several things to talk about today. We're going to lead off with a, a lawsuit about the school choice bill. I guess it's the school choice law. It was passed into law this year in early 2021 during the regular General Assembly. So we're going to talk about the lawsuit that's taken place about that about that law. Jasmine's going to give us a little bit of a Louisville policing update. There's been several things that have happened there, so we're going to talk a little bit about those. And we're going to do a COVID update. And then we have some quick hits that we want to get to. But without any further ado, Jasmine, let's talk about school choice. Jasmine, what do you remember about the school choice fight in the 2021 General Assembly? I remember it was House Bill 563, and it had to do with, it's like scholarship tax credits, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a very dramatic fight. So yeah, the 563 means it was like filed much later in the session. It was like, you know, they had something they were kind of working with and they kind of abandoned it and they got this new bill going. It was, there was a lot of education stuff that needed to happen, right? Uh, a lot of it had to do with some stuff in, in smaller independent school districts that are in a county with a, a school district as well. And, and they were like trying to figure out, come, come up with a way to kind of like compromise how students got assigned to those smaller school districts. But then uh, because everything has to be super hyper-partisan, the Republicans decided to attach some kind of voucher system to it. And that kind of happened at the last second, um, they were the way that they kind of tried to deal with this is they passed this this law which allowed for education opportunity accounts. So that's what you were talking about with those like accounts, and uh, those accounts basically were only available to children in counties with more than ninety thousand residents. So they restricted it pretty substantially. That means they're just for like Louisville, Lexington, the three northern Kentucky counties, and then a handful of other places like Owensboro, Bowling Green, Elizabethtown, and Richmond. But if you live in a small rural town or a small rural county, you uh, do not have access to this program at all. And I would venture to guess that a lot of the the you know leaders in some of these larger areas don't necessarily want them. So the scheme itself, you know, it was kind of unique. It involved private donors that could fund these accounts and then receive a tax credit. And those accounts were, you know, only available to students making 175% of the poverty line or less. And really kind of, you know, this this kind of happened, but I also just kind of want to reiterate again that, that, that this is called a school choice bill, and that's how we're referring it, referring to it because it does involve, like, school choice. But, you know, the original people who wrote this bill were like, what the heck, we have a real problem that we need to deal with, and you guys attached this very controversial issue to it. Uh, so that's, that's something that happened. You know, uh, Jasmine, one of the things I thought you might remember, and you probably will once I remind you, but the, the passing of this bill is incredibly fraught. Uh, you know, it was very, very close. I think it was like 47 to 47. And then Alvin Gentry, a Democrat, switched sides and voted for it to get it passed in the legislature before the veto session. Do you, you remember that? That was very dramatic. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, Governor Bashir vetoed it. And then on the veto override, which passed pretty uh, heftily, there were like 55, 56 votes or something. I'm not sure the total. Alvin Gentry did not vote for it on the veto override. But yeah, it would have been very, very dramatic if uh, it had failed. It looked like it might if Alvin Gentry had not switched uh, switched mm-hmm. his vote to, to yes on it originally. So that's kind of the bill as it exists. 
the, the lawsuit about the bill is heard in Franklin Circuit Court, and and Philip Shepard is is a judge that we've talked about on this on this show many many times before. He is you know the Circuit Court judge there in Franklin County, and he hears a ton of state government cases. Anything involving a state law, when it goes to circuit court, it goes to Franklin Circuit Court, and and one of two judges typically hears it because that's how many circuit court judges there are in Franklin County. And Judge Shepard is one of the people who who hears you know these cases. Matt Bevin, if you'll remember back that far, he really did not like Judge Shepard and, and thought that he, uh, you know, was out to get him. I think that had to more to do with the fact that the Republicans and the Bevin administration were doing some things that were definitely stretching the interpretation of the law. Um, but, but you know, Judge Shepard ruled in favor of Bevin, uh, Governor Bevin, uh, ahead of Attorney General Bashir several times in the time that Matt Bevin was governor. And that's something we talked about at length during those years. So, okay, the group that's suing about this bill, they're called the Council for Better Education. And the Council for Better Education is a big deal when it comes to, like, legal things involving education. They were one of the the plaintiffs, the named plaintiff, in this really big deal lawsuit that we'll get to later. But the argument that the Council for Better Education is basically trying to make is that this bill funds private schools with public dollars. And the argument against this is that the payments are indirect. You know, an individual, a person has to give money to these educational opportunity accounts, and then they get a tax break. So, you know, it's not like a direct payment. But but that's kind of what the legal argument is. Are we using public money to pay for private schools? And, and that's kind of the crux of the argument. And that's kind of what what, you know, Judge Shepard is deciding upon. Does that uh, does that mean that public dollars are funding private education. And, and that seems to be, I mean, first of all, Judge Shepard has to decide whether or not it's okay or not okay to, to you know, fund public education with, or to fund private education with public dollars. And then he has to say if whether or not these tax breaks, you know, equate to public dollars. So that's kind of the crux of the argument there. As with most things involving the courts in Kentucky education, the Rose decision was heavily cited. And that's what I was talking about just a second ago. So Rose versus the Council for Better Education, again, this group that, that's involved in this case, that's a landmark case in, in Kentucky that declared the education system unconstitutional and paved the way for the Kira reforms of the 1990s. Jasmine, you've talked about the, the Rose decision before, I think several times, right? I think so. You did. You definitely I, did. I know what it is. I don't know if I've talked about it much on the podcast, <laughs> but yes, it's a Kentucky Supreme Court decision that it's basically interpreting... Kentucky Constitution section 183 that says that the General Assembly shall provide for an efficient system of common schools throughout the state throughout the state and what the Rose decision did was establish these criteria for like what is an efficient system of schools and what is sufficient. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's going on. And, and yeah, so this this court case gets brought up a lot. Uh, and in this specific case, the Council of Better the Council for Better Education, this is their quote. As our Supreme Court made clear in its landmark decision in Rose versus Council for Better Education, the General Assembly has an unyielding obligation to provide for and oversee an efficient use of common schools and cannot redirect public funds to private schools that serve a select few. Unquote. So that's the case that they're trying to make. They're, they're citing this Rose decision very directly and basically asking Judge Shepard to make his ruling based on this Rose decision. So another shade to this argument is that because the law restricts beneficiaries to students in counties with more than 90,000 students... 90,000 people, the, the, the program kind of runs afoul of this, you know, system for common schools. Obviously, you know, it's not a common school if the people had 90,000 
uh, at the counties of 90,000 people are treated differently than everybody else. And this kind of also goes back to, I mean, this is something we discussed when it was being passed. It was passed at the last second. There were a lot of compromises that had to be made. And, and the, these kind of, these things were like flying back and forth at the very, very end of the session. When they had a lot of other things to get to. And I would venture to say they weren't super well thought through. Um, and and I, so I think that that actually probably bodes well for the Council for Better Education in this lawsuit. But we will see. The other side of the argument is Daniel Cameron's office and the Institute of Justice. I don't know who they are. What a great name. Are you are you in favor of justice? Then you should join the Institute of Justice. Yeah, right. Whatever. Uh, this is their quote. Quote, tax credits are not spending. There's no government expenditure. The plaintiffs don't provide a defining line for why, if HB 563 is unconstitutional, do the other educational tax credits not also violate the Kentucky Constitution? Unquote. So I guess there's these other you know, tax benefits that, that kind of go towards education in some other way. I mean... I guess that also kind of opens the door to Judge Shepard issuing a much broader ruling that like all these tax credits for education are also unconstitutional. And that's not something he's he's shy about doing. He's done stuff like that before. So that's something we will certainly see. Meanwhile, the bill is kind of set to be implemented. However, the Kentucky Administrative Office of the Courts and the Kentucky Department of Revenue said that no actions would uh, be taken uh, to start creating these accounts until at least October 11th. That's when Judge Shepard said he would issue his ruling by by at least then. So, Jasmine, uh, what do you think about this lawsuit? Do you think it stands a good chance with Philip Shepard? Do you think it will uh, stand a good chance with the Supreme Court where it's inevitably heading? What, what do you think about this lawsuit right now? Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure because I don't know, you know, I don't practice education law, so I'm not super familiar with cases after Rose. Like, how how has Rose been interpreted for other issues? And that I don't really know much about. but. I see both sides of this argument um, that it that it is an individual that's paying into these accounts. It's just individual donations. So what can you do about that? But I am I do see an issue with the law restricting beneficiaries to students in counties with less than or greater than ninety thousand people. You know, Rose talks about like the children there's a quote in it. It's like the children of the poor and the children of the rich children who live in poor districts and children who live in rich districts have to be given the same opportunity and access to education. And so that's where I think that that could be an issue for um, the AG's office. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely think that that's like the easiest path forward to say like, you can't do this. That's ridiculous to restrict it to, to counties with more than 90,000 people. I also think that opens like a huge political can of worms for the Republicans in the legislature, because I mean, I think one of the reasons this passed is because so many Republicans could be like, this doesn't deal with our district. We're only doing this to mm-hmm. <laughs> to big counties where we can have vouchers because, you know, for 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 whatever else there is. The House, at least the Kentucky House, is pretty moderate on education, despite being very conservative on just about every issue. So, you know, if in order to get vouchers, they're going to have to go to every county in the state, I wonder if the Republicans in the legislature will take this up again. All of that's way out into the future. This bill, this lawsuit could save this bill. Um, They could still implement it anyway. Um, There's a lot of things out there that could still happen, but, but we will we will definitely see. Yeah, uh, I you know definitely headed to the Supreme Court. You think that's fair to say? Yeah, probably so. Supreme Court of Kentucky. Yeah, that's what I meant. Supreme the Skokie, yeah. 
Skokie, as we like to call them around here. Uh, yeah, I think likely, too, they'll probably skip the appeals level. Um, they, they do that from time to time on big cases like this that are, you know, they know that it's headed to the Supreme Court. So we will see. That's the, the school choice lawsuit. We'll definitely be checking in on that. Uh, that's got, what, like two or three weeks before there's going to be a ruling. We will definitely update you when that comes around. Jasmine, tell us about policing in Louisville. All right. So this week we have a lot of policing related stories. So I figured that we would do a little update about everything that's going on. Um, first are like a couple shorter stories and then a little bit longer one. Earlier in the summer, we talked about Joshua Jaynes is firing in his merit board hearing. And Jaynes was the officer who wrote the search warrant and the Breonna Taylor raid. And he was fired by the interim chief Yvette Gentry for providing false information in the search warrant. And this summer, the merit board unanimously upheld his termination. Um, And so now he has sued and the complaint alleges that the board made an arbitrary decision that wasn't based on facts and that the board's attorney exceeded his role as legal advisor. Um, I didn't have access to the complaint, but the article I read about it says it's 89 pages. He's got a lot of arguments That's, about why he shouldn't have been seem, terminated. Yeah, this doesn't seem like an overly complicated question. 89 pages is a lot. So I guess he probably just like threw the kitchen sink at it. Like everything he was mad about the police department for doing to him, I guess, made it into the complaint. Yeah. And so this case is in Jefferson Circuit Court. It's assigned to Judge Annie O'Connell. Um, and you know, I think typically, I don't know, you know, how often merit board decisions are overturned, but I think the merit board, like 80% of the time upholds terminations. Um, I don't know how often they get overturned, like in lawsuits, but, um, it was a unanimous decision and we'll see what happens there. Yeah. I mean, most of the time it has to be pretty egregious for a police officer to be fired in the first place. So I'm not too surprised that the, the merit board, you know, upholds those many convictions. Uh, I mean, it is worth saying that this is kind of an unusual case because, you know, it, it's high profile and it's egregious, but it's also very high profile. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. Um, the next story on Saturday, Louisville's buffer zone ordinance went into effect. And so this was an ordinance passed by Metro Council that allows for a 10 feet buffer zone at like healthcare facilities. And that includes the EMW clinic, which is, you know, the only place in the state that provides abortions. Um, so the law went into effect on Saturday. Yellow lines were marked on the ground to mark the buffer zone. That's actually kind of a story in itself. The lines were marked and then the next day they were painted over in gray. And so people at the clinic thought that someone had tried to erase them. It turns out it was the city redoing them because they did the measurements wrong the first time or something. They actually like pressure washed. We talked about this last week in the quick hits, but yeah, that was a crazy story for sure. Yeah, so um, on Saturday, anti-abortion protesters basically acted as if the lines weren't there. They were sitting and standing and protesting inside of them. Um, The EMW clinic called the police several times on Saturday morning, beginning at 7.40 a.m., but LMPD never came to assist them. 
Yeah. Um, and, and the two spawns, the two main people who worked the hardest to get this passed, the, the Metro Council people, Cassie Chambers Armstrong and Jacory Arthur, both, ex- both expressed like dismay at the mm-hmm. situation. They both called on the mayor and the police chief. Uh, that, I think that's kind of what has to happen next is you have to get like the higher ups uh, involved. I think the police, did you have anything in here about this? No, I don't, the, the, the police actually said like they were busy doing other things, which, okay. Uh, that was a little weird. Yeah, I, and I also wonder, like, if the FBI won't get involved. I mean, a lot of the times we're, we're talking a lot more about, like, federal enforcement of abortion, uh, you know, abor- protecting abortion access. Uh, I know that's something that, that Vice President Harris is like, really pushed. So, you know, another potential avenue in the future. So something we'll see. Yeah, and, you know, I think I also note this story because, you know, we, we spent a year talking about protests in Louisville over like racial justice. And there was a heavy police presence at all of the protests. There were people arrested. There were people arrested for like ordinances and misdemeanors for like obstructing roadways and things like that. And, but then when something like this happens, there is no enforcement. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just an example of how um, policing can definitely differ depending on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it also is a, a huge story about like rules and laws. Like we had, ad- we advocated for a long time to get this law passed and, you know, we won the battle. We elected the people we needed to, to get this thing in place. And the people that we elected delivered their legislators, they got the ordinance passed. But, but if you don't have, you know, an executive in position to to enforce this law what good is it uh so you kind of have to have both of those things something to be thinking about as louisville kind of turns the page uh next year and elects a new mayor um as you're working through who to vote for all the people running uh maybe a question to ask i think that that's certainly something that we will be doing so uh what's up next jasmine uh this next one is a super super tragic story um, today, three teenagers were shot at the bus stop in the West End, and one student who was an Eastern High School student died um, from his injuries. And, you know, I note this in this policing update because, you know, immediately after this happened in a press conference, Chief Erica Shields, LMPD's chief, called for JCPS to have its own police force. That was kind of strange to me. I, I mean, I have never even heard anybody suggest this before. Of course, like the role of police inside of JCPS has been like a big issue a lot in the past. And, and J, you know, Louisville Police, LMPD pulled their student resource officers out of schools and uh, I, I believe the school board voted not to keep them. You know, they, they canceled that contract or didn't renew that contract or, or however that happened. Um, and yeah, this is kind of an odd, odd, odd time to do this because I would also kind of think like, how would this make a difference? Like how would have yeah. CPS having its own police force? Cause that would mostly be like cops in schools. And this occurred mm-hmm. at a bus stop before the bus got there. So this was still like an LMPD issue. I, yeah, it was that was a very, very strange suggestion that seemed like almost to deflect from the issue at hand. Um, yeah. And at this point, there hasn't been anything said about suspects and whether the suspect was a student, like anything like that. So it was just like a 
a big reaction, you know, in favor of heavy policing when not a lot of details are even known yet, or at least made public. I don't know. Yeah. What she knows, but she was taught. I mean, she she said a bunch of other things. I don't know if it was her that my report the reporting of this. I mean, there were people talking about like gangs in schools and a specific pro, pro you know problem at Eastern High School, and I mean, all of that just seemed almost like hearsay. I mean, at this moment mm-hmm. when this child had died and this crazy tragedy had occurred, and you know, I, I thought Jacory Arthur did a good job of expressing like rage and sorrow, in the yeah, moment, which I felt like was very appropriate. Uh, this other stuff about like just kind of saying, well. Eastern high school, you know, what can you expect? Which, I mean, just seemed very strange to me. It didn't seem appropriate. It didn't seem like that was backed up with any kind of facts. It didn't seem like that was the best vehicle to even start talking about that issue. People are starving for answers to the violence problem in this city. Um, but I mean, you know, know the room uh, and, and answer the question yeah. at the right time. So yeah, that is not not great in my opinion. And And this is definitely one of those things that Heavy school policing, I don't think is the answer. This is a, a root cause situation. Yeah. Who, who's asking for it? You know, if the police yeah. are the only ones really asking for it. I don't think any of the anybody in the city is asking for more cops. I don't think that I mean, you know, I don't think that the, the students, the people who live in Russell, like I don't think anybody who's involved in this situation is asking for more police outside of like Anthony Piagentini and the police department themselves. So, you know, it, it also, yeah, you're exactly right. It like smacks of like using this tragedy as a, a way to, to advance your agenda of an increased police presence, which also is very distasteful. Mm-hmm. Our last story here um, is about the proposed police contract for LMPD officers and sergeants. So um, that proposed contract was voted down 71% of voting police officers rejected their proposed contract, which included a 9% pay increase and also some reform measures. Um, And because the vote failed, the city will now have to go back to negotiating. The reform measures I mentioned, really simple stuff like um, drug and alcohol testing after critical incidents and not allowing officers to review their body cams before being interviewed by investigators for policy violations. I mean, this, these are just measures that provide for like some level of like truthfulness and accountability. (laughs) That's that's all they are. There's a lot of people that are pushing for way, way more than just this. And and the the contract includes these very minimal things and yeah, and it was still still a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, the reason that it was rejected, I think, is they're saying that the 9% pay increase wasn't enough. Um, Metro Council President David James had been critical of the agreement. He said that the members listened to their chief say that the LMPD should be the highest paid police department in the state. This proposed agreement does not accomplish that goal. They listened to the Metro Council president say that there is more money available to realize these goals. But he later corrected that statement and encouraged acceptance of the contract and said it's, you know, the best ever or something like that. Um, But he told the Courier-Journal that he thought that the proposed salary raise didn't factor in the savings created by LMPD not filling positions. But then he later learned that it had. So he... He, he kind of corrected his criticisms of the proposed contract. 
But then after the deal was rejected, Mayor Fisher blamed it on David James and council member Keisha Dorsey, who had held public comment before the vote, Um, which James's response to that was blaming Fisher for the lack of information saying that like, he didn't have the right information because they refused to allow any council members at the negotiating table. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I, if I had to describe Greg Fisher in one word, it would mostly probably be tired. <laughs> I think, you know, yeah. that's probably the most generous way I can put it. He just doesn't seem like he has his heart in much anymore. And instead of providing leadership, which he had an opportunity to do so here, I, you know, he kind of like shifted the blame to these two Metro council members. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that, I mean, I don't, I, all this reporting has kind of focused in on David James. I kind of understand, like he kind of stepped in it, but then walked back his statement. Doesn't know if that was a big deal, but like, I don't even know what Keisha Dorsey did. What did she just like held public comment? And that's like, that means you're in trouble. I I don't know. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. And you know, I, I will say that no other city employees are getting anything close to a 9% pay increase these days. You know, I don't know what further negotiations will look like, but you know, the thing about increasing police funding is that if you're going to increase police funding and proactive policing and all of these things, then if you have more arrests, you also need to fund other agencies you need to fund corrections global metro corrections is in a crisis they gave a statement saying like it was dangerous for people at the jail right now like people's loved ones who are there corrections officers it's the situation is so dire that it's dangerous for everyone right now so if you're going to fund increase police funding you have to fund the public defender's offices who are overwhelmed by more cases, the jails, probation and parole officers, that funding's not, you know, no one else is seeing those kind of pay increases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's staffing issues all over the place. Uh, I mean, I, I, I listened to that, that corrections thing too, Jasmine. I think that they said they're working like 14 hour shifts, like on a regular basis when I think they were only supposed to be working like eight hour shifts. And yeah, it just seems very dangerous. It seems like a big, a big mess. And, and it just seems like, there's a lot to dig out of here and you know just even this small thing of approving this contract uh ran into problems so a lot a lot of stuff that needs work here mm-hmm. sure. and i do want to note that there's there's also a group called the 490 project that is kind of a group on the other side that is fighting for stronger reforms in the contract i saw that they also made a statement about um lmpd's comments today as well so you know, they're fighting to see some stronger measures other than a few of the, you know, simple accountability measures that are in the proposed contract. And and I don't know, you know, I don't know if the FOP even has a problem with those. I, I think it comes down to the pay increase not being enough. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what it was. It seemed like a lot of this stuff kind of got coverage. But yeah, they're all going to have to go back and negotiate. And I don't know what's going to happen. And neither neither do you, I don't think. I don't think anybody No. Nope. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's it for policing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, as usual, a very cheery policing update from Jasmine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're moving on to COVID, oh, an equally cheery, yeah. an equally cheery story. All right, uh, Jasmine, it does seem pretty clear that that cases have now peaked and are on the way back down, very very slowly, but it, but it is happening. We're not going up anymore. 
Uh, I, I don't think that we're 100% sure of that. You know, we've been duped before. We've had like, oh, yeah, it looks like it's going back down. And in fact, like went back up. I, I think very specifically about like the week after Christmas uh, in the in the winter when I mean, we just like saw a case's nosedive, take a crazy fall uh, just to shoot way back up uh, early in January and keep climbing. Um, you know, cases are now almost at exactly 4,000 per day. We actually had a pretty good report now uh, today. And yeah, we're at 4,000 almost exactly on the 14-day average. And we're down to like 37.72 on the seven-day average. And when you start to see a separation like that, it means that we're, we're falling pretty quickly. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in, in, in the future. You know, we were, we were at a high of about, you know, 4,300 just a, a few weeks ago. So, you know, my big hope is that the decline is as sharp as the increase. So, you know, we're on the way back down quite, quite quickly. So as of Tuesday, and this is true on Wednesday as well, three small counties are out of the red, uh, Clinton, Livingston, and Carlisle. One of them is actually in the yellow. So those are smaller counties. So, you know, small changes can have a big impact there. But yeah, there's three counties that are out of the red. In the southeastern Kentucky, that is the area that has been the hottest. And, and when it was really, really bad in August, that is where, you know, lots of counties were over 200 cases per 100,000, somewhere over 150. Whitley is now the only county with more than 200 cases per 100,000 population. Lots of other counties in that area have cooled off substantially. Most are between 100 and 150 cases per 100,000, which that's incredibly high. You know, it's four times the red zone, but, but much better than it's been in previous weeks. In our urban areas, Louisville looked like it was on the way back down in the past two weeks, but there was a significant bump up. Uh, we were back up to 3,700 last week, uh, up from 2,900 the week before. Um, th- that might have been an issue with some Labor Day reporting in previous weeks, and, and 3,700 is pretty close to the all-time high in Louisville. So I, I do think, you know, I, I, we don't get the detailed numbers on the Louisville website every day, but just reading the tea leaves from the uh, incidence rate on the state's map for Jefferson County, I do think we're going to be back down to a lower number next week. So let's let's actually hope that that comes to, to pass. Lexington, though, did seem like that their decrease uh, continued apace. It did seem like uh, they, they were continuing to go down. But again, I'm just looking at those graphs. I'm not actually getting numbers out of Lexington's health department. Deaths in Kentucky have increased very substantially. This isn't an uh, unexpected. Uh, a rise in cases also precedes a rise in deaths. I think there had been a lot of hope, and I think that there still is a lot of hope, that the increase in vaccinations means that the ratio of cases to, to deaths is... Wait a minute. If cases to deaths... Uh, anyways, there's fewer deaths. <laughs> I can't remember if that means the ratio is higher or lower. Uh, I can't do that math in my head right now. But uh, I think that there is some hope that the increased vaccination rate means that there will be fewer deaths. But uh, we are, in fact, seeing quite a few deaths happening. Kentucky's seven-day average in deaths is nearing 40. Uh, the 14-day average is approaching 30. Between Wednesday and Sunday of last week, there were 49, 62, 45, and 48 deaths. Uh, it was a little better in the past couple of days. But then today we showed up with with uh, 52 deaths. So that's quite a few um, on today. That's Wednesday. So, you know, in Louisville, the number of deaths uh, increased after a significant drop. But, you know, deaths are still substantially below the peak uh, of where they were even in this local rise. So, um, you know, this summer surge that we've been seeing in Louisville, we saw it come back down and then we saw it go back up. But we still aren't to where we were in August Louisville had 20 
last week, 20 deaths last week. There were 29 at the end of August. You know, I think Louisville is the place, Louisville and some of these other highly vaccinated places are the place where we will probably see, you know, a higher vaccination rate equating to a lower death rate. Uh, But we'll see if that's repeated throughout the rest of the state. I think that there are some places down in southeastern Kentucky, southwestern Kentucky, where there's lower vaccination rate that is going to result in a higher ratio of deaths. So it does appear that there is some relief for our hospitals in sight. Uh, The number as of Tuesday were 2337 people in Kentucky hospitals off of a high of 22,664. So that's a pretty significant decrease. The curve does appear to be pretty normal. I mean, it does, it went up and then it went back down and there's no like bouncing around. So hopefully the census just continues to decrease. But I do want to at least mention that, you know, reducing hospital census in the midst of a pandemic is tragic. And, you know, we talked about all those deaths in the past couple of days. Uh, That is what's leading us to the reduction of census. There are, of course, some people that get better and we celebrate those people. Um, But, of course, a lot of these stories end in tragedy. And that is that's really sad. 77 percent of Kentucky hospitals are reporting critical staff shortages. And that's according to the governor. So, Jasmine, you talked about at the end of the very, very end of the special session, there was a push to help hospitals hire more staff by providing money for them to do so. And the governor addressed this idea during his Monday press conference, saying that it was important not to get into what he called an arms race, where hospitals increase wages, causing staffing agencies to then increase their rates and then charging hospitals even more to staff their hospitals. So there are significant issues with the way that hospitals address staffing issues. And I think the governor would like to look at those a little bit more holistically. Jasmine, does that make sense in terms of like the way that hospitals are staffed? Do you know what I mean there? I mean, it makes sense what you said. I didn't know that that's how they worked, though. Basically, if you don't have staff to work, you have to get some them from somebody. There's these staffing agencies that like, you know, at the last second, if you need three nurses, we can provide three nurses mm-hmm. to you. They have like a contract to do that. And basically, that's if you're a nurse, you can go work for a hospital directly. You get a very regular paycheck or you can go work for a staffing agency and you get paid a little bit more. But your work isn't as stable. Uh, you know, you kind of get called in. You can get called in to work lots of different kinds of places and do lots of different kinds of things. And, you know. The thing is, like these staffing agencies are seeing, you know, if the government gives hospitals money uh, to to deal with their staffing issues, they're going to pay the nurses more. The staffing agencies are then just going to pay even more. The nurses that work at the hospital are going to go back to the staffing agency. And then those same nurses are going to end up working in the same hospitals. And the staffing agency is just going to charge the hospital a higher rate. So I kind of understand where the governor is coming from. I think we do probably need a more holistic solution. Um, but it does not seem like the the legislature and the governor are on the same page or <laughs> even interested in getting on the same page. That's just my yeah, yeah that's just my kind of insight there. Another really troubling trend is that our vaccination effort is losing steam. We're now somewhere between 5,000 and 6,500 people per day getting vaccinated. And, you know, we were very stable at 7,500 for several weeks back when the pandemic was at its worst. A few counties are, in fact, getting better. Uh, New on the list of counties with an increasing vaccination rate are Greenup, which that's great. That's where uh, Kelsey's parents live. And Martin, which is a very conservative county there next to, to Pike County. There are now 44 counties with more than 50% vaccinated citizens, according to the CDC. 50 is a pretty arbitrary number. I guess it's half. So, you know, that's important <laughs> to people. But, you know, we still need people 60, 70. We're, I guess we're we're going to get our first 80% vaccinated county probably here shortly. Uh, 
And I think it'll be tough to get to that level without getting the kids involved in, in some of the bigger mm-hmm. games. Yeah, I saw today that UK announced that 86% of their like population um, was vaccinated. So that's a really good rate, I think. Yeah, that's I, I don't know if we're looking at the same number, but I just pulled up the dashboard and 86% is the percent of vaccinated population over 18 years of age in Fayette County. So that is that is very good. I that you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that number was the same for campus, too. It seems like those would probably match each other pretty closely. But yeah, if you look at like Woodford and Franklin, which are leading the charge. Uh, yeah, Woodford's at like 91% of people over the 18 age of 18 and 76% vaccinated. Uh, Franklin is also at 76% vaccinated and 90% over the age of 18. So yeah, it's going to be tough for them to push any further uh, into, you know, get to that 80% mark. Maybe they'll be able to do it. You know, we had a we had James K on here last week. I mean, he seems like the, he seems like he's up for the job. He seems like he's going to mm-hmm. be working to do it. Louisville, uh, 80% people over 18. Uh, you know, we're, we're in, I think, sixth place uh, after Northern Kentucky and these three counties in Central Kentucky. So anyways, that is that is uh, our vaccination efforts. Some places doing quite well. Other places really struggling. Uh, that has been the story writ large of COVID. Um, last thing, Kentucky school districts have mostly opted for a mask mandate. I don't think we quite got to this last week. There are only six of Kentucky's 171 school districts that have decided to make masks optional. So that's that's good. Uh, you know, of course, those six districts did have masks. They did have to have masks before the special session. So it's impossible for us to say that the special session made us any safer. It made us less safe, especially if you are in one of those six districts. But uh, that is that is where we're at with with the mask mandates in schools. Kentucky is still among states having the worst time with COVID, but it does appear that improvement is on the horizon, and there are other places now that are are hit, getting hit even worse. Uh, looks like the Mountain West, Montana, Wyoming, Alaska are having a really rough time now. So, you know, prayers to them. Good luck uh, with your public policy response in those places. Um, all of those are pretty unique. Uh, Alaska and, and Montana are, you know, red states, but have very idiosyncratic politics Wyoming's just pretty Republican, although they have Liz Cheney. I don't, I don't know anything about their governor, though. So we'll see what happens in those states as well. OK, anything about COVID, Jasmine? Any any stories for us this week in terms of things you're nervous about or, or excited about with COVID? I'm excited that I had an antibody test last week and I still have antibodies. Yeah. Did you? You're That's Pfizer. all I got. Are you Pfizer? I'm Pfizer. You're Pfizer. So yeah, that was the, that was kind of a, a piece of news that came out last week was that like Pfizer's antibodies degrade a lot faster than Moderna's and they were like 77% or whatever. They're still incredibly effective. The Pfizer mm-hmm. shot still works really, really well. But me and the Moderna gang, we're at like 91% effectiveness still, even after, you know, a long period of time. So, you know, I don't need my booster for a long time. I'll let, I'll let everybody else go first. So uh, that is what it is. Oh yeah, and the boosters probably not coming. There's like some politics that are going on there. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll see what happens on the federal level. A uh, lot of lot of federal drama. I, and and kind of like the last thing I will say is you know these are anecdotes and just my experience, and I don't really know if this is like a systematic issue, but like getting a test has just gotten to be really hard. Uh, yeah, I talked about that like the did. last few weeks. I've mentioned it and. I don't really know how. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, my wife Kelsey was able to get a test today, so you know we've we've both had this like 
weird crud related to the baby being in daycare or we're just kind of yeah. like Bleh. but kelsey actually had a, a you know 99 degree fever overnight it went away very quickly but she still was a little worried and she worked for mm-hmm. like a couple of hours like she's like i'm in meetings talking to people trying to get a test uh she got a test came back negative and so that was kind of my insight was that like it's you can do it but it just takes a lot of effort and it's really hard and a lot of other places in the world it's nowhere near this hard so you know, hopefully we get that straightened out. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Before we get out of here, I did have two quick hits I wanted to talk about. So first of all, a former campaign manager from both Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell's campaigns was indicted on conspiracy charges. So those charges say that Jesse Benton, that's this guy, Jesse Benton, facilitated con- contributions to a Florida candidate from a foreign national, a Russian guy. That's illegal. You can't do that. Uh, and then, you know, it's like a $100,000 contribution. He pocketed $75,000 and then gave 25000 to the Florida candidate. I guess as like a tax for taking on risk, but he got they both got caught and now they're both in trouble. So that is what's going on. Jesse Benton is somebody who's a name in Kentucky that people know. He's been involved in several candidate campaigns on the Republican side for a while. Um, not to make it too partisan, because Democrats' hands certainly are not clean when it comes to having uh, people in campaign spaces get in trouble, uh, but definitely something that happened this week. All right, lastly, uh, something I wanted to mention. Uh, the Kentucky Democratic Party has started a training program for prospective candidates and staff. So the program is actually going to take place in mid-November, and there are some listening sessions that are happening this week. So if you're listening uh, on the 23rd, there's a listen, there's a listening session today. Uh, so that's that's Thursday. And then there's also one on the 26th. If you're interested in running for office or helping someone else run for office and you're a Democrat you're, or you're interested in the Democratic Party, you should apply for the program. You can do so at kydemocrats.org slash ready, the number two, run. So there is that. All right. Anything else, Jasmine? I think that's it. All right. How can people get a hold of us? We have a link tree now with all of our links. Um, so you can go to linktree.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And there you'll find our latest episode, how to subscribe to our podcast, how to support us on Patreon and subscribe to our newsletter. And we're part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.